Good morning. Welcome to Mission View Church. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here. If this is your first time with us, welcome. So glad you've joined us. If you're joining us online for the first time, welcome. So glad you are uh, um, coming in on TV or live stream or Facebook, however you're watching this morning. We, uh, like a Jordan said, we're going to start a new sermon series today called Lasting Leadership. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Titus. Um, If you're new to the Bible, that's towards the end of the Bible, probably about three quarters of the way through, maybe a little further than that. A short little book, just three chapters. We're going to be going over it the next three weeks. And I thought it would be appropriate for us to go through this at this time. Um, Many of you know that last weekend we announced we have uh, two new elder candidates that are going to be going through the candidacy process over the next six months. So um, I thought it's a great book to study and um, a great time to study it for us as a church. Leadership, man, over the years I've really enjoyed studying leadership. I've learned so much from guys like John Maxwell and Patrick Lancioni and Mark Dever, John MacArthur, books like The Twelve Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church series. It's a series of books that we really enjoy here at Mission View Church. We actually use those. We're, we're going to be going through, actually, as I'm talking about that, we're going through a teaching series um, on those as well. <clears throat> if you're interested in that, talk to Pastor Joe. Death by Meeting, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Lincoln on leadership. There's so much out there having to do with leadership. And the reason there is, is because leadership really, really matters. It's, it's fascinating to see how great leaders strategize, how great leaders organize um, their, their companies and the people that they lead. One statement that has kind of stood out for me as I've studied through all this stuff over the last 15, 20 years or so is that This statement that says, everything rises and falls on leadership. As the leadership goes, so goes the organization. I don't think it would be a stretch for me to stand up here and say that every person in this room and every person watching online, every person's life has been affected, whether it be good or bad, by leadership. Every one of us, every one of our lives are affected by leadership. You can probably recall a coach, a teacher, a family member who made a difference in your life, whose leadership was either a huge blessing or curse in your life. Now, Jesus modeled perfect leadership as he lived out his life with the disciples. And the New Testament is is full of letters to the churches guiding, directing, and leading them towards God's best for them and for us today. So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at what God's Word has to say about lasting, healthy leadership. So uh, what I want to do to start this, this series off is kind of give us a little background on this book, kind of what's going on so we can kind of approach it with, with that aspect. So Titus was not a Jewish guy as most of the New Testament writers were. He was a Gentile convert who had served and traveled with the Apostle Paul. Titus also had functioned as a, a faithful friend to the troubled church in Corinth. Now, in approximately 63 A.D., sometime after they left Timothy in Ephesus to kind of pastor the churches there, Paul and Titus traveled on to Crete, where Paul then left Titus behind to help provide leadership for the Cretan church. Paul was like the ultimate church planner. I mean, everywhere he went, these little churches popped up, and, and he would leave leadership behind, good, healthy leaders behind to kind of oversee and care for, invest in the people in the churches that were there. 
Leadership, like we said, is so important. So as we go to Scripture, we have this this God-given picture of what healthy biblical leadership should be like, how they should act, how they should talk, what they should do with their time. I mean, we have a lot of that stuff in here. And one of the reasons I enjoy studying the epistles so much is because the practical application and direction we get from them. Now, in Titus, Paul's encouraging Titus to endure ongoing opposition from the ungodly and from legalists in his own congregations. And Paul instructed Titus to complete his assignment, his assigned job of establishing overseers or elders for the churches under his care. So right away what we're going to find as we go through chapter 1 is that, that God actually has an organizational structure for the church. Praise God, right? We're not left to our own devices here. God makes it really clear. What is God's best for the church is a leadership structure that he's kind of laid out for us in Scripture. So that's really, really good. Paul also talks about here in his letter to Titus what, about what the fuel or motivation behind Christian living, living is. And, and what it is is the grace of God has appeared and it's brought salvation for all people. And therefore, those who believe in Christ are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as we await his return. All right, so that's kind of a little background, kind of where Paul's going in his letter to Titus. Let's go ahead and pray before we read the text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we want to submit to your truth, to your righteousness, and to your guidance this morning. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Soften our hearts to receive that truth, to to come under your leadership above all else. God, I pray that you would use me this morning. Give me the words to share, the way to share them that would be most glorifying to you, most edifying for our family here today. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Titus chapter 1, starting in... Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I'm going to stop us right there. God, the first filling in your notes today is this, is that God, in God's intended order for his church is to have elders or overseers. As we look at this structure that kind of Paul's laying out for Titus, for the guidance of the church, for God's best for his church, 
God plans for there to be a leadership structure, and in that leadership structure is elders, or uh, could be translated overseers. It's, it's used both ways there. So what does that mean? What, what are kind of those requirements? What do these guys' lives look like? Here's what they look like. Above reproach. It means that they avoid even the appearance of evil, and the way they live does not bring into question their love for God, their love for His church, or their love for the lost. He's a husband of one wife. He's committed to his wife. He has eyes for her alone. Christ is the center of their marriage. He loves her as Christ loves the church and gave his life for the church. So, so this guy, he gives his life for his wife. He does not love her because she's always lovable, but because of his love for Jesus, he just lavishes his love on his wife. His wife is usually the, one who, the only one who can answer this question rightly. You know, as you, when you look at, at marriages, you can think that everything's just great, everything's peachy, they just love each other, they're just, so, they're just so into each other, but behind the scenes, it may not be all rainbows and unicorns, right? Usually, wives can speak into this more than any other person. Important to know that, too. It says also that his children are submissive and following his lead. Now, this is in regards to when his children are under his authority, when our children leave our authority, they fall under, under God's authority and are accountable to Him. This is a huge transition. I'm going to stop here just for a second. I think this is really important for us to talk about because it's, and maybe it's because I'm going through this in my life right now as my kids are growing older, my daughters get married in two weeks. But there's this point in life where our kids leave the umbrella of our authority. And they have to make their faith their own. They have to make their own choices. They have to walk out that journey that God has laid out for them. And it's hard for us as parents to trust in God's providence or God's sovereignty in the choices that our kids make, right? I know it's hard for me as my son's, you know, started his first job. He's getting ready to move out and he's finished college. My daughter's getting married in two weeks. I, I have to let them make their choices. They're going to be accountable for the decisions that they make. There's a transition that happens. Now, our kids will, will always be our children. But there's a transition that happens where they go from being just our children to being our brothers and sisters in Christ. We go from authoritarian authority, guiding and directing them to counselor. <laughs> Brother in Christ coming along my son. When I come alongside my son, it's not telling him what to do anymore. When he asks... And sometimes when he doesn't ask, <laughs> I come alongside him and say, hey, have you prayed about this? What do you think is the best thing to do? When my daughter's making those decisions and I'm watching this go down and I'm like, oh man, I remember having to make that decision. And I, I didn't have all the facts, you know, I, I hadn't had a whole lot of life lived under my belt. And I see her making those decisions and I'm like, you sure you want to do this? You know, there's this part where it transitions, where we're, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, my kids are always going to be my kids, right? But they're not under my authority anymore. They're going to make their own choices. So, so really what Paul's talking about to Titus here is their kids are under the, their parents' authority. They are submitting, and they're, really what he's saying is that their parents are being parents. According to God's Word that they're lovingly raising them in God's Word. He's not talking about perfect kids here. He's, he's talking about parents who are walking through raising their kids the way God trains us and tells us to. 
What are some other things that Paul writes in here? He talks about humility. They do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, these, these, these overseers consider others better than themselves. They, they look not only to their own interests, but also the interests of others. That's the biblical definition of humility. They walk in that kind of humility. These, these aren't like guys who are lording some type of authority over everyone else. These are servants of servants. These are the guys who are walking out servanthood, modeling that from, for, for everyone else in the congregation. They aren't these great leaders. They are these great servants who lovingly lead and guide. Patient. They are calm, slow to speak, not angry or easily frustrated. They're quick to listen. They're long-suffering. They are patient. They're not drunkards. They do not get drunk or drink too much. They are not controlled by the desire to consume alcohol or any other drug for that matter. They're not violent. They're peacemakers. They're problem solvers. They are the ones who speak truth and kindness in the midst of conflict. They are meek. They walk in meekness. They're not greedy for gain, it says. So they're not greedy for power, self-promotion, or riches. They recognize the sovereignty of God in all circumstances and submit to His providence with joy and contentment, like we talked about last week. It says that they're hospitable. It means that they love people. They care for others. They're approachable and inviting. And they speak in winsome ways. This is someone who loves good, Paul says. Righteousness brings a smile to their face. They find great joy in the extension of God's kingdom and in the sanctification in the lives of those in the community of believers. They are your cheerleader for change and God's work in your life. It says that they are self-controlled. They are not controlled by their desires or emotions or temptations but by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, they turn from temptation and fleshy desire and submit to God. It says they also live upright, disciplined, and holy lives. Holy means set apart. Their lives look different. They are living sacrifices on fire for God, set on fire by God, sustained by the power of the Spirit, and God's hand on them is obvious. Elders or overseers are not great men. They are men greatly affected by God. Elders or overseers are not great men. They are men greatly affected by God. Verse 9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We're talking about doctrinal authority in the church. Doctrine is what we believe. It's talking about holding us to orthodoxy or original belief or those foundational beliefs. What we call those things here at Mission View uh, are spine issues. We, we have issues in Scripture that are rib issues and rib issues in Scripture that are spine issues. Spine issues are the non-negotiables about our faith. These are the things that we hold with closed hands that there's not negotiation or debate that goes on about them, that Jesus is the only way to God the Father to heaven. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh, truly God, truly man. God exists in a triune being. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We humbly acknowledge that we can't wrap our minds around that truth fully, 
but we do believe it, that God is triune. Not three gods, but one, three in one. There's these certain things that we don't negotiate, we don't let go of. These are orthodoxy is what we call that, the original beliefs we hold to. And these overseers that Paul's talking about, he's saying these are the guys that you look to to hold you to this belief, this doctrine, and they can teach it, and they're called to rebuke those who vary from it or stray from it. This is the work of overseer, elder, God's best, his structure for our church. Now, there's, there's always a huge question here, right, as, as this is talked about, and one of the main questions I get as I do pizza with a pastor, if you're new to Mission View Church, I'll just throw this out there. Uh, about quarterly or even more often, we do what's called pizza with a pastor, and you're invited for a free lunch after church in the commons, and um, you can sit, we'll have pizza together, and you can ask me any question you would like. Everything's, everything's on, there's nothing off the table. You can ask me any, any question you'd like. You can try and stump the pastor, whatever you'd like to do. One of the main questions I get is about this idea of, of men's roles and women's roles in the church and, and how you read the Bible and how you interpret the Bible along those lines. And, and I'll just tell you really clearly up front that Mission View Church is a complementarian church, that we believe that God created man and woman in his image, both equal and in value and, and who he's created, that we are both image bearers of the Most High God. And what that means is that we are image bearers of God together, that men and women both bear the image of their creator, equal in value and, and equal in, in smarts and, and learning and growing and creativity and all this amazing stuff that God has given us to live out in the church, but we also see clearly given different roles for men and women in the home as husband and wife and in the church as men and women. So one of the main questions I get anytime I read this text or a text similar to it in First Timothy and some other texts in the Bible is, why men and not women? So instead of just ignoring that question, I thought we would just go into that really quickly and get an answer for that because I think it's a great question. All throughout Scripture, God uses the headship of men in the home and the church as a leadership structure for the flourishing of the family and the church. Now we get really, I'm going to get into a couple of those right now. The first one is in the Genesis account. So we have the Genesis account of creation. We have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it's paradise, right? It's amazing. They have all this, this garden that has all these amazing plants and and fruit trees, and all. You can't, we can't even really imagine how amazing it was. And Adam and Eve were living this, just this unity uh, of relationship and beauty and relationship with God as well. There was no hindrance. There was no sin separating them from, from God. It was just this beautiful thing going on. And, and um, so God creates Adam, and then he creates Eve to be a helpmate to Adam. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I will create a helper for, suitable for him, is how it says it. So he creates Eve, and we know the story, right? We, they're in the garden, they're in this paradise, and, and this snake comes to Eve and says, hey, you know, I know you're not supposed to eat of this tree. You know, I know God said you'd die if you ate this tree, but I mean, would you really die, you know? And we, we all know the story, how it goes, and my wife pointed out to me, which I think is brilliant. The funny thing is the snake comes and talks to Eve, and Eve doesn't go, oh my gosh, a snake's talking to me. 
that's how my wife's mind works, right? She is in the details of these things. Think about that for a second. You're in the Garden of Eden, and you're walking around, and a boa constrictor comes up to you and says, hey, how's it going? We'd be like, what's happening, right? So anyways, that's how my wife's mind thinks. So she believes that animals will talk in heaven. That's where that goes. But anyways, side notes, here we go. All right, sorry about that. So anyways, we know how the story goes. Eve takes the fruit and eats it, and then she feeds some to Adam. That's what the scriptures say. And that's how it goes down. Now sin enters the world. Death enters the world. Horrible separation. God comes down. He's walking in the garden. His presence is in the garden. And he doesn't say, Eve, what'd you do? Why'd you listen to the serpent? He doesn't even say, Eve and Adam, where are you? What have you done? Why would you do this? I told you not to. He says, Adam, where are you? Why? Why didn't he say Eve? What'd you do? Even Adam, what'd you do? Adam and Eve, what'd you do? No, there was this, this accountability given, directed right at Adam. And we see that from the very beginning. We move on to the New Testament. We have scriptures in Ephesians that are directions for the family. In, in Ephesians 5, it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and Christ died for the church. Husbands, now we're not going to be crucified for our wives, but we are to die to our own desires for our wives. We are to die to our wants and our needs and prefer our wives and lead our wives sacrificially as a servant, as Christ modeled for us for the church. Husbands are the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And wives are to submit to their own husbands. Now, that being said, we get in Scripture from Ephesians and other, other texts that God always parallels husbands and wives, Christ and the church. And as, as Paul's writing this, and as the Holy Spirit is writing this through Paul, he doesn't differentiate. He doesn't say, like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and, and wives, submit to your own husbands, and, and as, you know, the church submits to Christ. He, there's this, this like, like, we're spo- supposed to know like it's, it's this unspoken reality that God intends for husbands and wives and this beautiful complementary relationship of, of leadership and servanthood and submission and friendship and unity to be kind of this, this model for the world to look in on and be like, oh, wow, that's how life is supposed to look? That's how this is supposed to work? And see this beautiful servant leadership and and um, coming alongside of and res- mutual respect and love and joy in that relationship. It, it's just, it's supposed to be what the world looks in on and says, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like? Wow, that's awesome. And the church is the same way. As we lead and love and, and live out lives as God intends us to. This complementary relationship is meant to be a beacon of hope to the world that models true biblical love and leadership, servanthood, submission, and teamwork. As the world looks in and sees this kind of relationship and the church living out this example, it is meant to be a glimpse of the gospel. A glimpse of the gospel. Because what happens in our relationships 
and it happens in every relationship, is that we make mistakes. We mess up. We mess this stuff up. Wives aren't always, you know, coming alongside their husbands and and submitting to them and loving them and caring for them. And husbands aren't always lovingly leading their wives. They're not always serving their wives. We don't always think of her needs before our own. We don't think of her desires before our own. Sometimes we're selfish. And it goes both ways. And it causes all kinds of friction and problems and fights and arguments, right? Like, but, but that's, that's the opportunity. Because we're always going to have friction. Because we're always going to have sin until Jesus returns. And in the moment and in that relationship, it is God's intention for us to model and live out the gospel for the world to see. As I forgive my wife, and as my, and probably more often, my wife forgives me, and we lovingly walk out forgiveness and repentance with and for one another, everybody else is looking in and like, wait a second, wasn't it like six years ago your husband did this? I mean, I thought, man, I would have left him by then. You know, what, you guys seem like you like each other again. What, what happened? Oh, you don't understand. I mean, when I was really thinking about it, what my wife did to me and everything else, I, you know, Jesus forgave me and all the things I did to him, and he calls me to forgive her. I mean, God just, God walked me through that, and now we're best friends. I, our marriage is better than it's ever been before. That is the gospel lived out. And let me just say, that is what our world needs. Can I get an amen for that one? The world needs to see this. We live in a cancel culture who doesn't want to hear an opposing view for anything. They need, we need the gospel more than we've ever needed it. Christian marriage models the gospel. The Christian church in right structured relationship models the gospel as we die to ourselves, preferring the other over ourselves. That's, that's a beautiful picture that God wants to paint in our lives, in our marriages, and in our church. Now, last week we referenced 1 Timothy 2, so I thought it would just be great for us to look at it again. And in 1 Timothy 2, it's in the context of doctrinal authority, just like here in Titus. God, through Paul, makes it clear that women are not to teach men or exercise doctrinal authority over men in the church. This role of elder or overseer is set aside for men. Now, why? Why is that? Well, we talked about a little bit that, that is kind of modeled for us throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But, I mean, you hear all types of arguments about this. It's, well, that was a cultural thing. It was a patriarchal society back then. Women didn't have opportunity for education. So, obviously, back then it was like that. But today, it is different. I want to give us a little bit of a herm hermeneutics class today. Hermeneutics is the way we interpret Scripture, Okay. And here's one of the rules in hermeneutics, and this is probably a rule for any book that you would ever read, just common sense really, is if the author defines what he is saying and tells you the reason why, there's no other reason why. We can't make up our own reason why, right? If the author tells us, if God tells us why, we can't make up some other why. God's why always trumps our why, okay? So, so here's what really happened in, in 1 Timothy 2. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So there's an order of creation. 
And then he says in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It is not some cultural oddity. It's not because women did not have access to schooling. It wasn't because it was a patriarchal society. Eldership is God's created order, and it is because of what happened in the fall. Before the fall, in the garden, there was no animosity or abuse or friction. It was perfect harmony, unhindered relationship. After the fall, there was abuse, misuse, competition, struggle, and all those things still exist today. Now, just because those things still exist, just because those struggles are still, still there, does not mean we throw out God's direction and structure. I would say that Rather than that, we would adhere to his structure and his guidance for us even more so. This is how God intends for his church to be led. There's just no getting around it. God told us why. God told us why. And that's what God intends for us. It's hard. This is a really difficult one. Because the, the question that comes after that is like, well, women can't be leader or elders or overseers. What, what are we supposed to do? And I want to say this. Ladies, you are just as smart or smarter. You have just as many leadership qualities and some even more. God has given you a mind. God has given you a voice. And the same Holy Spirit that speaks and lives in, in me lives and speaks in you. And God has a calling on your life. And some of you out there are called to leadership. And we want at Mission View women to live out their leadership roles here at Mission View Church. Now, there, there are some, some things that God, the structure that God's given us, but there, there's really, outside of preaching on Sunday morning, which we view the pulpit and the preaching on Sunday morning as doctrinal authority, pretty much outside of that, you can do pretty much anything you want to do. Teach leadership classes like Claire Smith's going to be teaching a leadership class for our community group leaders. Teach and and grow in your gifts and use the gifts that God's given you. I would say this too. Our job as the staff of Mission View Church, our job as elders at Mission View Church, the job of the deacons here at Mission View Church, our job is to see every single person that comes to Mission View Church using the gifts that God has given them for God's kingdom and for their good and the good of the church. That's our job. So we want to see you using the gifts that God has given you. Let's move on, verse 10 here. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting the whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Man, must have been a rough group right there, right? Therefore, rebuke them sharply. That's, that's always fun, right? That's where we enjoy ministry, right? Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. 
They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. What a statement. They profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So I'm going to pull out one statement there that I think is really important for us to to kind of wrap our minds around. It says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And this really points us to two different things. The first one, rebuke them sharply. Because of the brokenness in the world and the broken people in the world and broken people in the church, we have to correct them, point them in the right direction, strongly urge them towards what is right. And this means that lasting leadership will address sin. Lasting leadership will address sin. In Galatians 6.1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a tra- any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Calling people on their sin gently but firmly, sharply. Lasting leadership is not afraid to call people on the hard stuff, to address the elephant in the room, right? We're not just going to tiptoe around it. We have to get it out and talk about it. Confrontation is hard. This is like, this is the, the part that gets me sweaty when I'm talking about, you know, church life and different things. As we We live out lives. All of us are going to fall. All of us are going to make mistakes. And it's church leadership's job to, and even brothers and sisters, I mean, God calls all of us to this, that we would confront one another. If you see somebody doing something or saying something that they shouldn't do or say as a brother or sister in Christ, and especially leadership, we have to say something. We have to do something. I mean, if you saw somebody, if we went to... If, if we were at the edge of a mountain and you saw somebody blindfolded walking towards the edge, would you just let them walk off this cliff? No. You'd be like, run up to them, you'd grab them, you'd take the blindfold off, you'd be like, dude, stop, you're going to kill yourself here. That's what God calls us to do, to lovingly and sharply and quickly address what's going on. The truth about confrontation is that there's no real relationship without confrontation. There's no real relationship without confrontation. I get this. In, in marriage counseling, the question isn't, do you have confrontation in your marriage? The question I ask couples is, do you deal with confrontation in a healthy way? Do you confront one another in a healthy way? Everyone knows that in real vulnerable relationships, you have to have the hard conversations. That's how we grow. That's how we each grow the way that God's called us to grow, but that's how we grow in relationship with one another as well and build trust with one another as well as being truthful and being honest, being vulnerable and having the hard conversations. If God loves us too much to leave us the way we are, and he does, shouldn't we love each other enough to to bring to attention the issues that are going on that we see that maybe they don't see, the issues that are harming them and harming the people around us. We need people in our lives who are going to point out the spinach in our teeth, right? Have you ever done that? You order the Caesar salad, you're having a great evening, and you're just having a fun time smiling and talking to everybody. It's a great 10, 15 people around you. You're talking for hours. I mean, it's been a great evening. You're going home, you're riding home, and 
And you're just like, oh, honey, wasn't that a great night? I mean, I couldn't believe everyone just laughing at me. I was hilarious tonight. And she's like, well, you do have some spinach right there in your front teeth. You, I mean, right? We need somebody who's going to just say, hey, 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 discreetly and kindly and gently, hey, there's some spinach there. You've got some, there's a little something, right? Right? We need those people in our lives. Who is it in your life who confronts you when you're saying something you shouldn't say? Who is it? Who have you given permission to, to say, hey, you've got some spinach in your teeth? Who is it in your life who you've given permission to confront you when you are doing something you shouldn't, saying something you shouldn't? We have to give people we trust permission to invade our space like that. I, honestly, I, I, I've told the elders multiple times, if you see me saying something or doing something that I shouldn't be saying or doing, pull me aside and give me the, the punch to the gut, right? We need to have those people in our lives. We have to have those people in our lives. In Matthew 18, 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and confront him privately. If he listens to you, get this, you have won your brother over. You will win your brother over. It's like that proverb in 27 that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. What a statement. That's a lyric, Jesse, right? I mean, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know what that means? It means this. The truth hurts. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't smell good. It hurts. The truth about the sin in our lives is what I'm talking about. It hurts. It's painful. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody likes to hear it. Nobody likes getting called on the carpet, but we all desperately need it. Faithful means, faithful those wounds are down the road because you look back at them and you just say, you know what? Man, I am glad that my wife told me I'm prideful because if I wouldn't have seen that, I would, man, I would have never known that I came across that way. I would have never known and I would never have been able to make some changes in my life and the way that I talk, the things that I do. Man, I'm so glad that my husband pointed out that I go after these things a little too much. Man, I thought that was okay, but now that I'm looking back on things, when he said it, that really hurt my feelings, but man, my feelings needed to be hurt on that issue, right? We need those. The verse 5 before this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Man, I like Proverbs. We're going to have to preach through Proverbs pretty soon. The second thing we see from this statement is that, and it's the third film in your notes, lasting leadership will clarify biblical truth. Lasting leadership will clarify biblical truth. This is speaking biblical truth in love. This isn't slamming someone or tearing them down or running around with your Bible just like, this is what the Bible says, and you're just smacking people across the head. That's not what he's talking about. It's not one-upmanship or trying to make ourselves look or sound smarter or better than everybody else. It is seeing someone going down the wrong road and caring enough for them to go to God's Word with them and seek out the truth. 
It's doing the hard work of lasting long relationship and leadership. It's not just dropping a Bible verse on someone. It's coming alongside them and saying, hey, do you want to grab breakfast sometime? Maybe we could talk over lunch. Getting into relationship with him and walking through the issues that you see God bringing up. It's, it's, coming, to them out of, it's coming to them out of a heart of care and mentorship. It's, it's the idea of, of that scripture that says, don't address the speck in your brother's eye until you deal with the splinter or the log in your own. Don't address the splinter in your brother's eye until you deal with the log in your own. We can't lead, mentor, and care for others until we're willing to say, my sin is big and their sin is small. And really what the heart of that is, is servanthood and humility. When we come and we speak biblical truth, when we come and address doctrine and different things, we come in a spirit of humility. We speak in winsome ways and we address it in love because we are more concerned about their salvation and sanctification, either one of those, we are more concerned about those things than we are concerned about my, my ease of life. We're more concerned about our brother or sister in Christ than we are about my desires, my wants, and my things. That's what this is really getting at. This is correcting what people think the Bible says, this doctrine, this biblical truth. I don't know of any other book that is more misquoted or more misunderstood than the Bible. So many verses have been thrown around for so long for certain ideas that we really don't know what they mean. One of those is this, where two or more are gathered, there I am with them. Isn't that a great verse? You're like, where two or more are gathered, the Spirit of the Lord is just there with them. Woohoo! warm fuzzies, here we go, right? It's just a great verse. And it is a great verse. Praise God that where two or more are gathered in His name, there He is with them. But guess what the context of that is? Church discipline. So really what He's saying, when the leaders come together and make a decision on disciplining someone in the church, God is with those two or more leaders. And what those two or more leaders decide for that person is God's will. Wow. You talk about misquoted, right? You have a worship leaders in churches. They're up there on Sunday morning. Brothers and sisters, where two or more are gathered in his name, he's with us. Let's worship him together. And then they're talking about church discipline. That's what the context is. Totally misquoted, totally misused, right? And so many different verses are in there like that. The, the idea behind elders and overseers, this doctrinal authority piece, is that we would be held too accountable to those things. Lasting leadership reminds us of the truth that we believe, keeping to orthodoxy or original beliefs, the spine issues in Scripture. Man, we have so many today that are trying to bring a new revelation now, God gives us new revelation of who He is all the time, and we do want new revelation from His Word. What I'm talking about is we have so many churches that are trying to preach new revelation outside of this. You have people claiming to be apostles today. New Apostolic Reformation, I don't know if you've heard of that. Don't look it up. It's horrific. But they're writing a new Bible. 
They're like, hey, I know what it says in Timothy, but here's what I say. I'm an apostle. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. That's not humble leadership, one. That, and that goes against anything that the Bible teaches. The apostles wrote the scriptures. Lasting leadership addresses wrong belief, corrects misunderstandings of God's word, but does it in kindness and humility. And get this, correction from a prideful heart is belittling, but correction from a heart of love builds up. And that's what God has called us to do, that we would, we would direct people towards correct doctrine in a loving, caring way, a humble way. That we would go to God's Word with you together. And that's what we're willing to do, just, just to say that right up front. If you ever disagree with anything that you hear at Mission View Church, we would love to get together with you and talk about that. Absolutely love it. Love it. Uh, for eight years, I served in a United Methodist Church by God's grace. And the pastor there, me and him disagreed on a couple rib issues. And I remember sitting in his office for hours talking through these different rib issues that we disagreed on. I mean, we were, we'd have these conversations. And I'll tell you, Jeff Harper, Dr., the Reverend Dr. Jeff Harper, is one of my best friends to this day. I love him. I love him like a brother. And we disagree on some rib issues. I mean, we really disagree. But we, those conversations were so uplifting. And you know what we got out of those conversations was this. We walked out of there, one, loving each other more and more every time, but we came out of there with this, this idea like, man, God's word is so rich. I mean, there's so much in there. I just need to get into it more and more and more. And like iron sharpens iron. So I, when I say, if you hear something that you're struggling with or you disagree with, let's talk. Let's grab a coffee. We'll talk for hours and go into God's word together. And that stands for all the elders. We would love to meet with you and talk with you through the difficult truths that God calls us to work in and through our lives. That's, that's what we are all about. We love that kind of stuff. Love considers why, how, and when and where we correct others or where we come together on these things. It's based on what is best for others. We're not going to correct somebody right out in public and embarrass them or heart, cause harm to them. We're going to, to think about when's the best time to talk about this? When's the best time to get together about this? And not my, on my account. It's, it's the best time for, for others. We do it selflessly. If the leadership is unwilling to do this, to, to address things and to talk about things, it can lead to all types of misunderstandings of the Scripture, and it can lead people astray. That's why Paul is, as we say, rebuke them sharply. I mean, he's, he knows what happens if we don't do this stuff. Elders or overseers are to hold us to the truths of Scripture, to make sure our doctrine or what we believe stays true and pure. Man, as we talk through this stuff and we go through the book of Titus, all of these things are extremely weighty and important. God intends, here's why. Well, they, they are weighty and heavy on their own. But on top of that, God intends, now hear me on this, God intends for broken men to lead other broken people. And God intends... For broken women to lead other broken people. Make no mistake, 
The elders are not guys who have arrived at spiritual perfection. (laughs) Far from it. They are men who love the Lord and are joyfully trying to glorify Him in every area of our lives. We are working out our faith with fear and trembling. We will fail. We will fall. But we will never stop loving Him and you and the lost. Now, this list of qualification that Paul gives are not a list of perfect achievements, but a list of humble and prayerful intentions and some recognizable fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in those things in the lives of these guys. No one, and I'll just make this real clear, no one can live up to this standard perfectly. No one. Well, Jesus did. Praise God. We have a perfect example. Jesus did. But by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we can see God's hand working in the lives of of these men in these ways. It is never, like I said earlier, it's never about the mighty men of God, but rather the mighty God of man. Any type of leadership in the kingdom of God, now this is great, any type of leadership in the kingdom of God is an exercise in trusting God to do what only he can do in the lives of those who lead and the lives of those they are leading. Did you hear me on that? Lasting leadership, biblical leadership in the kingdom of God is an exercise in trusting God's sovereignty. That's really what it comes down to. Because we are all sinners and we all make mistakes. So there's got to be some trust. And you gotta, there's got to be some gospel work that happens in those relationships. With this in mind, Christian leaders should be the most humble leaders and have confidence in God's power, not their own. Now, the temptation throughout all of time and for all humanity is to put their trust in some great leader, someone who says all the right things and does all the right things, someone who stands out and seems to have it all together, someone who has the prettiest mask, let's be honest, somebody who has the sharpest, prettiest mask. Over and over again, humanity has been left wanting, damaged, and disappointed because they look to men and not the God of man. We are not going to be that kind of church. And you know what? We've experienced that as a church. When Pastor Steve went to be with Jesus, Mission View knew, knew that they knew that they knew that God was the king and leader of Mission View Church. God's going to do what he wants to do no matter what. And it could be me or it could be some other guy. It could be our elders now or it could be a whole different set of elders. God's going to accomplish his will no matter what. And the things that happen as he's accomplishing his will are his will. And it's not going to all be rainbows and unicorns. It's going to be some tornadoes and pterodactyls along with it. And that's, that's the gospel work as we work together to repent to one another and before the Lord and to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven you and me. It's the beauty of the church. It's the beauty of lasting leadership. And it's the beauty that God intends to show the rest of the world. So don't give up on relationship. Don't give up on God's way to do church. Everyone has been looking for someone. And we are going to be a church that looks to the one. 
Jesus is the head of the church. Mission View, let us be a people who sees Jesus as the one true head of the church. We all submit to his word, his authority, his lead. And we then lead as he taught us to, as a servant to all. One of the most beautiful examples in all of Scripture is when they were in the upper room together celebrating the Lord's Supper. The first thing Jesus does is he does the unthinkable. He does something so anti-culture and anti-religion and everything. He flipped the entire world upside down. When he took his robe and wrapped it around his waist and went to each of the disciples and got down on his knees and grabbed their dirty feet out of their gross sandals that they walked miles in and touched their dirty feet, which was heretical and wrong religiously and was culturally the lowest of the low of the low. And he washed every one of their feet, 24 dirty, sweaty, gross feet. And he washed the feet of the man who would betray him. That's the kind of servanthood God is calling us to. That's the kind of forgiveness God is calling us to. And that's what lasting leadership looks like. Let's be that kind of church. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to submit to your authority to your direction, to your structure, that we would be the church that you've called us to be, not because it's shiny and perfect and relevant, but because the God who created the universe is in it. Father, help us to focus our minds and hearts on you, not on what this world around us would say, but what your word says. Help us to be submissive to you, Father. Use us for your kingdom. Grow us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing songs this morning.